so it's March 8th, 2013, in Malaysia, Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're going to be considering how we can find Krishna in the world. So many times people think, well, in order to be Krishna conscious, I have to give up everything, I have to leave my family, take sannyas, go to Vrindavan, go to Radhakund, <laughs> you know, go to Mayapur, go to the back of the Ganga and just chant 192 rounds a day, and then I'll be able to be Krishna conscious. But of course, that wasn't what Krishna told Arjuna, I mean, he also thought like that, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, just leave everything, so much trouble. How can I think of Krishna? How can I be spiritual here? And Krishna said, Mamma think of me and fight. Think of me and fight. You know, how do I do that? How do I think of Krishna in the, you know, while I'm going to school, while I'm working at a job, while I'm taking care of my family? So, of course, in the Bhagavad Gita itself, Krishna gives many examples of how we can find him in the world. And he says, the verse we're going to focus on today is, Bhumirapanalopayu, Kamano Buddha Evacha, where Krishna says that earth, water, fire, air, ether, mind, intelligence, and ego constitute a separated energy. So we're going to be looking at the gross elements of earth, water, fire, air, ether. And I did write on these for Back to Godhead, so there was an article on Back to Godhead on each of these five elements. Do any of you people get Back to Godhead? Yes? And have you read any of those articles? I've seen it, I've seen it. Okay. Alright, so first we're going to look at Earth. Now, in each, for each of the elements, we're going to look at the qualities of the element, and we're going to look at the relationship to one of Krishna's opulences, and then we're going to look qualities, then we're going to look at opulences, one, one of Krishna's six opulences, then we're going to look at some particular aspect of Krishna, like his name, form, qualities, pastimes, and then we're going to also look at specific leelas. Alright, so for Earth, the qualities of Earth. Now, by the way, Earth means any matter in solid form. It doesn't just mean the planet. So although this, we're going to focus on planet Earth, really when we talk in the Shastra about the element Earth, we mean even tables and chairs and floors and walls and things like that. So the first thing about Earth, first quality that I, I think about with Earth, and you might think of more, this is what I thought about, and hopefully this will lead you to ideas for what you could think about. So Earth is very solid and dependable. We walk on it, we stand on it, we sit on it, we build buildings on it. And Rupa Goswami lists this as one of the qualities of Krishna, that he's so dependable that even the demons know if we follow the rules, Krishna's not going to kill us. We can depend on him. We can depend that if we offer something to Krishna with love and devotion, he accepts it. In the car on the way here, we were talking about prasada and how the people who aren't devotees Sometimes they have one taste of prasada that they remember for years and years and years and years and years. So why is that? Because the taste of prasada is the, t- it's the taste of God. What Chaitanya says, it's a taste of Krishna's saliva. It's what God tastes like. So even though you know we may not be 
fully realized devotees, still, Krishna's dependable. He says, you are for me, right? Bhattam Prashpam Palantayam Yomai Bhakta Kachati Tadaham Bhakta Paritam Ashrami Paritam You offer me with love and devotion, I'll accept it. So even we, we may say, well, I don't have so much love and devotion. But still, whatever we have, Krishna accepts and the food changes. So Krishna is dependable. And then Krishna says that he's the fragrance of the earth. Antonin thinks he's listening by Gita. So if you've ever worked with the soil, it has a nice smell, doesn't it? Kind of earthy smell. So that's Krishna. And all of the fragrances, just like we have this light blooming jasmine in the temple. As soon as you come, he's overwhelmed. So where's that fragrance coming from? It's coming from the earth. All the fragrances of all the different flowers, they're all coming from the earth. So all these smells, oh, that's the smell of Krishna, that's the smell of Krishna. There's a story that some devotees gave Prabhupada some flowers, I think jasmine flowers, and he was saying, yes, this is what Krishna smells like. Put it on his pillow all night. Then we can think of the earth in terms of power. Right? If the earth just shakes a little bit, just some little earthquake, everything is destroyed. That the earth can go instantly from being just sort of benign to being a tremendous power. Earthquakes, volcanoes. So where one of my sons lives in Hawaii, he actually lives on an active volcano. So every year we have a Rathiatra in a town called Volcano. You know, when I tell people that, they're like, what? <laughs> Actually, the volcano there is always active. Yeah, it's 24 hours. It's active. Which is nice, because that means it doesn't build up so much pressure. And a lot of people come to that island just to see the lava flowing into the ocean. and You see the island growing. The lava flows into the ocean, immediately cools, and becomes solid rock, and the island gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But this sudden anger, Krishna can also become suddenly angry. We have the pastime of Balaram when he went to Hastinapur because the crews had arrested his nephew, Krishna's son, Samba. And it said that Balaram became very angry like a volcano. You know, first he was very mild, and he said, you know, okay, you arrested him, all right, give him back bring him with his wife, Lakshmana, and let's have the marriage, and let's go on. And they said no, and they insulted Balaram. They said, who do you think you are? You're like the shoes, and you want to be the crown. And Balaram got very angry, and he actually dragged, started to drag the city uh, into the Ganga, like there was a big earthquake, and the whole city was moving into the Ganga. So, thank you. So Balaram's anger... Compared to that, like like a volcano or an earthquake, and he was dragging the city also like an earthquake. Then we can think of the earth as uh, the earth is compared to the bones of the Lord in the universal form. So even though there's occasionally earthquakes and volcanoes, still it's a, it's the support of everything. And Krishna tells us that He's the support of everything. Just like He says. Uh, Sutre Mani Gana Eva, I am the string under the pearls. So when we're walking on the earth, we can think this like the earth supports everything, so in the same way Krishna supports everything. And not only holds up everything, but supports everything just like uh, the 
adults who work and support their family. So everything we need, practically speaking, comes from the earth. All of the materials from our houses, all of our food, everything that we need is supplied by the earth. And when we're getting these supplies, we can remember, actually, Krishna is the ultimate support. He's the ultimate supplier. He's the ultimate sustainer. And Krishna describes himself as the origin and the resting place of all living beings. So that's also certainly the earth. Just like it says in the Bible, we're formed from dust, and again we become dust. So everything that we have, probably almost everything, something's come from water, but almost everything that we have, it comes from the earth, and again it goes back to earth. All of our possessions and our body even, it's, it's made out of solid matter, made out of earth, and again it goes back to the earth. And in the same way Krishna says, he's the beginning, middle, and end of all things. So when we notice this quality of earth, we can think that actually the original person who has this quality is Krishna. And then the earth is very satisfying. If you've ever spent time, especially working with soil, and planting things, and it's, it's very peaceful. For many years, about, about 10 years, a little more, I had a garden. I used to grow my own vegetables and herbs and flowers, and it was, it was like therapy. Pull out the weeds and water the ground, dig the earth, and it was, it was very, very satisfying. And the same way when we contact Krishna, we feel very satisfied. We feel peaceful. We feel that we're coming back to our, our roots. Even people who live in the cities, if they want to enjoy, they go to some country place, they go to a park, some place where they're in nature and they can be close to the earth. And we can think, you know, just like it's very satisfying for us to get in touch with earth, how much more satisfying is it for the soul to come back in touch with its source? And we talk about people being balanced, hmm? balanced or centered or grounded. The, the earth, of course, is very grounding. So the, our ultimate centering and balancing and grounding is in Krishna. You know, there's a tendency in the modern industrialized society to always want up. Everything good is up. Everything bad is down and everything good is up. Prices go up, the salaries go up. Gross national product goes up. I mean, does it really go up? It doesn't really go like up. <laughs> well, yeah. it's not really, you know, we can sort on a chart, but that's just we just create that up idea. But if you go to the more you know the more ancient societies, they weren't so interested in up and more and bigger and up and more and bigger. They were interested in balance. They were interested in balance and in harmony and sustainability. So we can think that Krishna is the ultimate, just like the earth is, the, is, is our, in our experience, this grounding and balancing, that Krishna is ultimately that way. If you become in touch with Krishna, you become very equipoised. It's quite interesting if you read the descriptions in the Bhagavad Gita of a self-realized person, a saintly person, the main underlying theme in all of them is equipoised and detached. Equipoised, equipoised. Not disturbed by honor and dishonor, not disturbed by heat and cold, not disturbed by happiness and distress, not disturbed by friends and enemies. Correct? Oh, it's over and over. It's this repeating 
theme. I was just working on uh, Sunday school materials. We were looking at all the different types of yoga. I was saying they're all meant to give detachment. Karma yoga, you karma palatyaga, you give up the fruit, you don't work for heaven anymore, you work for salvation, you become detached from the fruit of your work. Yan yoga, you're studying the shastra, you're studying philosophy, and you become detached. Dhyan yoga, you meditate on the Lord in the heart, and you have practiced heart, you don't even interact with the world. You're practically not eating, you're practically not breathing. Not seeing anything in the world, you become detached. And in bhakti yoga, of course, you become attached to Krishna, and in that way you become detached. So this idea again of being equipoised and balanced, not being elated when there's material happiness or depressed when there's material distress. So this is very much our concept of this balance of the earth. And then shelter. We're constantly talking about taking shelter of Krishna. So all of us live in a shelter, yes? None of us are homeless. Even homeless people, sometimes they go under a bridge. They find some shelter. And they go under a piece of plastic. So we're all looking for shelter. And the earth, of course, all of our shelters are made out of things that come from the earth. Stone and wood and bricks is all coming from the earth. So anytime we're in our shelter, we can think Krishna is the ultimate shelter. After all, the shelter that's made of earth is just temporary. Right? And we can think about how Krishna's his love, his wisdom, his mercy, his kindness. Everything is a real shelter to us. Okay. And if we if we if we've been away from home and we, we go back to our childhood <clears throat> go back to our childhood home and if our parents are, are still living, you know, we go to our mother and oh I feel such shelter, I feel such protection. How many millions of times more? You know, if you think just when you come home at night, or you even if, you know, if you're not working or something, even if you go out from the store, you go, oh, I'm back in my home. And you go for a trip. How do you feel when I come to my home, to my shelter? So multiply that by millions and millions of times how one feels when one comes to Krishna's shelter. And then the earth allows us for creativity. If you think about practically any of the arts, any of the fine arts, painting, sculpture, it's all made from earth. It's all taking earth and putting it in different forms, right? Rocks, we find mineral pigments in the rocks and the soil, etc. So think about how Krishna is the greatest artist. Whenever we see paintings, think about it. They all have come from earth. How Krishna is such an incredible artist. Every sunset is a little different. Right, every flower is a little different. I was created so many different varieties of, of beauty and, and uh, intricacy. And then the biggest thing that we're, the biggest object we're in touch with is our Earth. I mean, the sun's bigger, Jupiter's bigger, etc., but they don't look that way to us. Tiny little thing up in the sky. And we think about how Krishna's the greatest. He's the biggest. Raman means the greatest. And then Prabhupada talks about how gravity is really Sankarshana, is really Balaram. So of course we're always feeling gravity, like right now none of us are floating in the sky. We're not bouncing off the walls. And gravity is something that can allow us to remember Krishna at every moment. And what is gravity? It's a force of attraction. And Krishna is called the all-attractive. So it's actually this attractive force of Krishna that's pulling us to the earth. 
and that's keeping all of the planets in motion. That force, that attractive force, is ultimately Krishna. And of course, the Earth not only attracts us through gravity, but it has another attractive force. What's the other attractive force of the Earth besides gravity? Physics, physics. Magnetism, yes, the earth is also a raping magnet. So Prahlad Maharaj says that he's attracted to the Lord just like iron is attracted to a magnet. So think about the directions and the magnetic force of the earth. And then think about the attraction that people have for their homeland. Again, this is true everywhere. That people are willing to die for the particular piece of soil on which their body took birth. It's really silly if you think about it. You know, if you, if you, if you just for a second think about it, okay, the particular piece of dirt and rock on which this body happened to take birth, and I'm willing to lose my arms and legs, and <laughs> I'm willing to be paralyzed for life to defend this little piece of dirt rather than be in another piece of dirt. We have this huge attachment. Right? And we think of that Krishna, who's the source of the earth, Krishna, again, who's our real home, how attached we can be to him. You know, people are so willing to sacrifice for a piece of soil. How many wars in history have been fought over defending your homeland or enlarging your homeland or getting your homeland back? You know, these, these other guys took our homeland 58 million gazillion years ago and we still want it back, yes? <laughs> we remember. Our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-
you know, we can build our boats of brick and aluminum or something, steel. But Krishna's abode is made of living jewels. And everything there is very soft and everything there is very personal. Now, the pastimes I thought of in relation to the earth, well, what pastimes can you think of in relationship to the earth? Krishna's pastimes in relationship to the earth. Lord Varaha. So the whole earth had fallen into the Garbhadak ocean because the demons were drilling for oil and the Lord comes as a big boar and lifts up the earth. Yes? Last time when Krishna picks up Govardhan Hill. Ah, yes. Krishna picks. Actually, that's really interesting because there Krishna actually has the form of earth. Of course, the deities also. Krishna in his deity form is in a form of earth. But Govardhan Hill is Krishna in the form of a mountain. How fascinating. Yes. And Krishna listing Govardhan Hill. Any others? Mm, no, it's not earth. Good try. <laughs> Krishna eating dirt. Krishna eating dirt. <laughs> there you go. Lord Chaitanya ate dirt too. Lord Chaitanya ate dirt and his mother said, why are you eating dirt? And he said, what's the difference between sweets and dirt? All the sweets are ultimately just transformations of dirt. The dirt produces grass and the cows eat the grass and turns it into milk and you make it into burfi. What's the difference between dirt and burfi? <laughs> And she says, you foolish child, if you eat burfi, you'll get healthy, and if you eat dirt, you'll get sick. And he said, Mother, why didn't you tell us you tell me this philosophy before? And when Krishna ate dirt, that's like the impersonalist, right? They're saying everything's one. Everything's one. Okay, why don't you wear just pieces of cotton wool instead of a shirt? Why don't you eat dirt instead of sweets? Instead of eating carrots, eat dirt. What's the difference? It's all one. Nobody can live that philosophy. And when Krishna ate some dirt, what did he actually have in his mouth? He had the whole universe. So he had a lot of dirt in his mouth. And then, of course, we always hear about Krishna's footprints in the land of Vrindavan. And Krishna had the mark of his feet in the land of Vrindavan. Water. So, water again doesn't just mean H2O, but when the Shastra talks about water, it means any matter in liquid form. So, any kind of liquid. So, the qualities of water. Actually, this, this whole meditation for me started with water. I was in London and I went with one of the devotees to a swimming pool to get some exercise. I was swimming in the water, and as I'm swimming, I'm chanting, and I'm thinking, hmm, water is very soft, but it's very strong. And just like Krishna, he's very soft, and he's very strong. And from there, I started going off in this hole. I thought, oh, what else is there with water? So water is very soft and very strong. You know, although Krishna's the strongest, he's very delicate. You know, see, Krishna doesn't look like a big gorilla. You know? Like these, these strong guys that can pull a locomotive with their teeth and this kind of thing. You've seen that kind of thing? Yes? You know, in former times, 
Like in the Mahabharata times, there were soldiers who were, strong, who were stronger than 10,000 elephants. That wasn't just some poetry. There was one guy about 100 years ago who was stronger than four draft horses. You know what draft horses are? Really, really, really big horses, and they have hairy feet. Have you seen those horses? Yeah. They're much bigger than ordinary horses. Used for work. So this guy, you know, he had two horses strapped to his upper left arm and two horses strapped to his upper right arm, and he crossed his arms, and they were whipping the horses, and he, they would, he couldn't pull his arms apart. And he could pull, like, I don't know, I think it was four train cars up a hill with his teeth and things like that. But, you know, the guy looked like a gorilla. So Krishna doesn't, you know, and you punch him in the stomach. I mean, I didn't punch him in the stomach, so I don't, I don't have direct personal experience, but, you know, then it feels like a rock. So Krishna doesn't feel like a rock. Krishna just feels very soft. It's described that if a leaf touches him, it changes color. You know, if you have to press really hard on my body to get it to change color. So Krishna's very delicate. But at the same time, you know, he lifts over downhill with his little finger, effortlessly, a whole mountain. And of course, he's holding the planets, explained just like you hold some dust in your hand. He's holding them on his heads without even feeling the weight. So how strong Krishna is. But yet he's very soft. So in the same way, water is very, very powerful and very soft. And water is essential for health. Now, without water, we can't be, can't have cleanliness. So for bathing and for drinking. So without Krishna, we can't have proper spiritual health. You know, somebody may think they can be spiritually healthy in some other way. But without connecting with our source, it's impossible. You know, to have good health and then to be clean. Krishna is a supreme pure. So sociologists have researched, they've asked the question, are there universal moral principles? And they found five universal moral principles. And one of them is purity. That everyone values purity. Why? Again, because without purity you get sick. So there's, there's a universal moral principle of wanting purity and cleanliness. But Krishna is a supreme pure. And, you know, ordinary water is only going to cleanse to some extent. It's not going to give you complete purity. And water is very graceful. People love, love to see water moving, water falls, water going over rocks, water in fountains. And you think of how graceful Krishna is. You know, the water practically dances as it moves. So Krishna is also very graceful in his movements. And water is very refreshing. It makes it gives you makes you a feeling of energy and, and renewal. So Krishna also, whenever, whenever we're in contact with water, we can think, yes, in the same way Krishna is very refreshing and renewing. And very soothing also. You know, as we said, like with earth, dealing with earth is very relaxing. Same with water. You know, people want to relax. They'll take a bath, or they'll take a shower, or they'll go for a swim, and they, they feel, oh, you know, my tension is, is leaving me. So in the same way, Krishna is very soothing. It's, it's a relief to come and be with Krishna. And we're talking about water is powerful, so water can wear down even stone. And Jesus said that little drops of water will gradually wear away stone. And in the same way, contact with Krishna will gradually wear away even our stone heart. 
and all of our anarchists. Actually, our Christian conscious process is not so much a process of getting rid of our anarchists. Our process of Christian consciousness is becoming attached to Krishna. As we become attached to Krishna, naturally our anarchists go away. And water is very musical. Make wonderful sounds, moving water, very pleasing sounds. Actually, when Krishna was fighting with Kaliya, it's described that as he was hitting the water, it sounded like music. And it's interesting that uh, water is colorless, and yet it's very colorful. It reflects all the colors around it. So one can say that about Krishna, that in one sense, like we say, Krishna has no name, and yet he has infinite names. He has no form, and yet he has infinite forms. And water is very secretive. You go to a lake, you go to an ocean, you can't see the whole world within the water. You know, if you ever put on like a mask, yes? And you look in the water, and all of a sudden you see all these different colored fish and coral. So Krishna is also very secretive. You can't to understand, right? Jan Makarmatume did now make him your baby. If you actually understand Krishna's nature, immediately become liberated. You may just see Krishna superficially and think, oh, he's a young coward born this or that. But really, there's such depth. And not only secretive, but deep, right? Deep and broad, beyond expansion, beyond one's perception. So, in the same way, you see Krishna, oh, he's a little boy there being tied up by his mother. But actually, he's the deepest and the broadest. And uh, then taste. So water is the, Krishna says he's the taste of water, but actually all tastes have to do with water. The word taste in Sanskrit is rasa. So rasa in Ayurveda refers to the ultimate form of food that's in the blood. And if you think about anything we enjoy, it all involves liquid. You know, if you, I don't know if you do this when you were a kid in school, but if you like pat your tongue dry with a towel and then you put things on, you can't taste them. You need to have liquid on your tongue. Did you ever do that when you were in school? What kind of schools did you guys have? We had fun in school. Yeah, you, can pat, you, can, you can go home and try it. You just make your tongue totally dry, put some sugar on it, you won't taste it. You know, if you put something that's dry on a dry tongue, you have to have liquid. The same with our nose. We have mucus in our nose. Otherwise, we can't smell. We have wax in our ears. We have liquid in our eyes. We have moisture on our skin. And if you take away the moisture from any of our senses, they're no longer able to interact with their sense objects. So when we say Krishna is the taste of water, we say Krishna is the reservoir of all pleasure. It's the reservoir of all pleasure. And this pleasure is always experienced with liquid. And, of course, water increases other liquids. You can add water to other juices or milk or whatever. It increases it. So when you add Krishna to anything, it increases the taste. And uh, thinking about water, I, I personally related to Krishna's opulence of fame. And I was thinking that the most famous areas of the world are all those that are in relation to water, generally. Some in relation to earth, like some mountains. But usually... The very famous areas in relation to water, and also not only fame but uh, pleasure, especially Krishna's pastimes. So, vacation spots again, not all of them, but most vacation spots in the world are related to water and sometimes snow. 
People want to go where there's ocean, where there's lake, where there's waterfall, where there's a river or something. And if they want to have fun, if they want to have pastimes rather than work. So whenever we think of people enjoying water, we can think of Krishna's pastimes. The nature of the Lord as an enjoyer and the youthfulness of Krishna as this useful enjoyer. So some pastimes of Krishna related to water that you can think of. Matsya Avatar, okay. And also Korma. Korma is in the ocean of milk. That's also liquid. Actually, Korma is described as the lord of all rasa. Meditating on Korma allows you to get uh, your rasa, your taste, and your devotional activities. Therefore, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati worshipped the deity of Korma. That's interesting that Korma is mentioned at the very end of the Bhagavatam. Some other past songs in relation to water? Hmm? Radhika and, and Yamuna. Right? If we, we, if we read about Krishna's pastimes, he's bathing and swimming many times a day, at least four times a day. So his mother's bathing in the morning and in the evening, and in the middle of the day he's going to Radhika, and at night he's going to Yamuna. And there's many other, because Swami's described, he's going to all, all these different cleans in the Vrindavan area. So Krishna swims in many of them, and of course Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is swimming in the Ganga. So Krishna very much likes bathing and, and swimming. And what about uh, Sesha? Right? Krishna's lying on Sesha in the Garbhadak Ocean, and again, Varaha, all the rest of the earth, he goes into the water. Hmm? Into the cosmos. Ocean. And that whole concept that the universe is coming from water. So, so many nice things we can meditate on when we drink water, when we use water for cleaning, for washing our clothes, right, for cooking, or any liquids. Or any, I mean, Prabhupada even said if the alcoholic is meditating on Krishna as a taste of his wine, he'll eventually become a saintly person. <laughs> Astonishing statement. So just imagine if we're meditating on Krishna when we use water. Okay, the next one we're going to look at fire. And fire is not just, again, a, a fire, but any kind of radiant energy. So radiant energy or heat, we're going to look first at heat and then we're going to look at light. So heat is invisible. You can't see heat. And again, this is how Krishna is invisible. Again, the Sutra Manigana Eva. You see the string of pearls but you don't see the thread. You know the thread is there because the pearls are in an order, but you don't see the thread. So we know heat is there. We, we know there's heat in this room. Yes? Yeah. But we can't see it. Mm. And again, heat is very powerful. We have this, yeah. if you look at each of the alphas, water is also very powerful. You have to have a soft and powerful fire. Heat is invisible, but powerful. Just it gets a little bit too hot, then it causes destruction. It's like Krishna is very powerful. And heat is very moving and flowing. Heat is moving the air, you know, the air, the hot air is rising. That's what is allowing the birds to fly. And so heat is always in motion. It's moving the water cycle. It's the heat of the sun that's evaporating the water and having it come down as as rain. And Krishna is also always in motion. 
He's in his threefold bending form. He's not just standing still. He's always dancing. Baba says the whole world is full of Krishna's dancing. And he excites. That's how we cook. The way we cook, we expose things to heat. And what does heat do? It makes the molecules of the food move. And when they move, right, they change the texture and the flavor of the food. The heat basically destroys the structure of the food and recreates the structure in a new way. It changes the structure through being exciting. So Krishna is also very exciting. And when we're in touch with him, we also move. (laughs) And we change. It's explained that like when we get initiated, that it's like changing bell metal into gold. That our bodies are no longer acting in the same way. Our life is no longer the same. It may appear the same to an, to an outsider, like we were talking earlier about prasadam. So somebody may look at prasadam and say, oh, I know what that is. That's an apple. That's a piece of cake. That, but it, does, it isn't. When you eat that apple, you say, wow, what kind of apple is this? Where did it grow? Why did you buy it? Because it's not exactly an apple anymore. So just like heat does that, and of course heat digests our food. Talk about transformation, so that's pretty amazing. You know, you look at your, your fingernail, so that was a roti a couple days ago. <laughs> Isn't that cool? It was a cauliflower. Now it's a fingernail. Right? Am I right? Yes? Isn't that cool? So that's Krishna doing that. It's the fire of digestion. Of course, the fire of digestion is a chemical fire, but it is a fire. We are burning our food. That's why we breathe oxygen. We breathe oxygen, so we burn our food. We release the energy stored from the sun. And we talk about how we often talk about burning ignorance. That Krishna is the, the heat that burns the ignorance. You know, the Sudarshan, which is compared to the sun, also Krishna's weapon that, that burns away ignorance and that sanitizes everything. So heat also sanitizes. We're talking about how water purifies, but also heat purifies everything. So whenever we're around heat, we can remember that Krishna ultimately purifies everything. And we have the heat of the fire of sacrifice. And the, the heat of the fire of sacrifice is compared in the Bhagavatam to the mouth of the Lord in whom everything is offered. And of course we associate warmth and heat with life. Something that's alive is warm. Something that's dead is cold. And Krishna says he's the life of all that lives. So whenever we feel the warmth in our own body, or when we're touching the body of others who are warm, we can think this warmth is Krishna. Krishna says, I am the heat and fire. This warmth we're experiencing is actually Krishna. Krishna is the ultimate life. Of course, we also associate warmth with love. We talk about a warm embrace and a cold embrace, right? We even use a kind of more metaphorically cold look, right? I mean, not that there's literally ice coming out of the person's eyes, but we, we talk like that, don't we? I got a warm welcome. Or he's right, that person really cold. So Krishna's very welcoming. He's, he's very loving. He's not only is he, is he the life of all that lives, but he's ultimate love. So whenever we contact any kind of warmth, we can remember how Krishna's life and he's warmth. So now we're going to look at light. We looked at heat, now we're going to look at light. 
So light is often compared to knowledge. By light we get even ordinary knowledge. I can see where the stairs are and where the door is and right? understand where things are. And spirituality is often compared to enlightenment. When one gets the knowledge by which essence is destroyed, this knowledge lights up everything, as the sun lights up everything in the daytime. Now Krishna's toenails are said to be so effulgent that when Krishna puts his lotus feet on anything, it just, all the colors go away because Krishna's toenails are full of light. So whenever we see light, Krishna says, I'm the light of the sun, I'm the light of the moon. You think this light, this is like the enlightenment, ultimately the spiritual enlightenment, Ganadi, Pena, Bhashvatana, Krishna gives us. And we think of light as something welcoming. If you're expecting guests, you turn on the light. In our Arctic ceremony, right? We have the, actually, Kopi Pranayana told me the main component of an Arctic ceremony is the lamp. The most important element is the lamp. So why? Because it's, it's welcoming. So how, whenever we see light, again, we can think of how Krishna's welcoming us. And then uh, Sudarshan is not only associated with the heat of the sun, but also with the light of the sun. Sudarshan is, is addressed in the 8th canto as the master of speech, the light that allows us to know what we're saying, to have the knowledge to speak. And Sudarshan is also Krishna's eyes. The light of the sun, the light of the moon are compared to Krishna's eyes, and Krishna likes to speak with his eyes. Nice, I very much often speaks with his eyes. We also speak with our eyes, right? <laughs> so it's very enjoyable when you're so close to somebody that you can speak without words. So it's one of the most enjoyable things. When you just go, and they know what you're talking about, right? Isn't that pleasurable? So Krishna likes to do that for Many, many stories where Krishna gives sometimes very complicated and intricate instructions with his eyes. And uh, again, with Sudarshan, with the eyes of the master's speech, is the idea that after one's enlightened with knowledge, that one's speaking power also enlightens others. As far as says, one knows the sadhu by how they speak. That you can, one of the main ways you can tell someone's degree of enlightenment is how they speak. Barbara says, you don't go to a sadhu to see them, but to hear them. And then light is associated very much with festivals and holidays. So every culture, even materialistic, secular cultures, they have very, very much associate lights with parties and holidays and joining and festivals and celebrations, fireworks and candles and any kind of light. So Krishna is described in the spiritual world that every day is a festival. So whenever we see lights for festivals or holidays, we can think, yes, Krishna's abode is full of light and festivals. And then we also refer to people as light in terms of they're light-hearted. Right? Light-hearted means that they're fun. A fun person is also called a light person. And one of Krishna's personality traits is his dear Lalita. Dear Lalita is really, colloquially, you could say, party boy. Dhiradhata is the hero. Dhiradhata is the bad boy. Dhiraprasanta is the gentleman. And Dhiralalita is the party boy. So Krishna is he's a gentleman, he's a hero, he's a party boy, and he's a bad boy. 
bad boy, that's like, um, they'll have some story of some guy who was probably like a criminal, but he then fights for the police, right? He's real tough. Heavy duties, that's Diratata. Diratata's like when Krishna's on the battlefield and he says, you know, you're a rascal. People who are about to die don't talk much. Pretty soon I'll cut off your head. Someone's doing that. <laughs> so, light-hearted people can remind us of Krishna as Diralita. And light, of course, is the source of all of our food. Now, we can say the source of all the tastes come from water, but all, of, all the things we eat are a combination of primarily light, sunlight, some water, and some minerals from the earth. Yes? Everything we eat is getting some minerals from the earth, water, and sunlight. So although the taste is coming from water, the bulk of the food we're eating is actually just transformed light. Is that also cool? Everything we're eating is really transformed light. Therefore, mystic yogis can live on sunlight. They don't have to have the sunlight transformed into spinach or potatoes or something else. You can just eat it directly. So in the same way, Krishna is the ultimate source of everything. When we see the light, we can think how really what we're eating is light. And of course, that light, that sunlight, is just a little reflection of Krishna's Brahmajyoti. Actually, everything we're eating is ultimately Krishna. Krishna is digesting and Krishna is the food. And when you digest your food properly, you get a healthy glow. According to Ayurveda, you digest the food, digest the food, till it becomes um, ojas and tejas. Ojas is, is, the, is light. So a healthy person actually has some glow around them. So that also reminds us of Krishna, who is very effulgent that Krishna would steal the butter and yogurt and the other, the coward ladies would tell Mamiya Soda that, you know, he's, even if we keep everything in darkness, his brilliant jewels light up the room. And Mamiya Soda says, well, I'll just take his jewels away. And they said, well, that won't work because he has some sort of light emanating from his body. Or he just lights everything up in the darkness. And then Krishna also said he's the light of the moon. So the light of the moon is very refreshing and cooling. And again, Krishna has this refreshing, cooling talk about the lotus feet of Lord Chananda, like moons and moons. And of course, the light of the moon particularly increases people's inclination towards love and romance. And Krishna is, of course, the master of all real love and real romance, not what parades for it in this world. And all of us have a light in our eyes. Yes, not only do we have a kind of a healthy glow altogether, particularly our eyes actually have light. Of course, Krishna's eyes emanate light. Krishna's eyes are the sun. But Bhaktivinoda has this very nice poem, Mama Mana Mandire, and he says, I will offer you Artik with the light of my love. So, we, you know, we talk about people looking at us with you know, they have a light in their eyes and they have the light of love. So when we see people's eyes lit up with excitement, we can think about offering that light of love to Krishna. So I particularly related fire to Krishna's opulence of beauty because it's through fire that we can see form. Without light, there's no, there's no meaning of beauty without light. Light allows us to perceive beauty. And of course, fire itself is very, very beautiful. We can just, if we're looking at a fire, we can be just entranced looking at the fire. 
that also light is the source of all colors. And Krishna's form is described as glistening in the fourth canto of the Bhagavatam. That all of Krishna's form is, is glistening and, and glittering, and that Krishna's earrings are reflected on his cheeks, which act like mirrors, like sapphire mirrors. And of course, uh, Krishna also has uh, great sensory strength, uh, just as fire has a lot of strength. And I also felt that uh, just like I related earth to Krishna's abode and water to Krishna's pastime, so I'm relating, I'm personally relating fire to Krishna's form. Again, because Krishna's form is effulgent and because with light one can see form. And so Krishna's beauty, as again we said, is glittering and glowing and brilliant and, and, and colors and all the details of Krishna's form. Whenever we see light, and we appreciate the various forms in this world. We can think of the details of Krishna's form, his lotus feet, the marks on his feet, right? his ankle bells, the tulsi leaves on his feet, and his, his thighs that are like elephant trunks, and his glittering yellow garments, and so forth. What pastimes does Krishna have related to fire? Hmm? Agasura? Oh, that was, he became very hot in Bakasura. In Bakasura. Although Bakasura did have, like, fiery, bad smell coming out of his mouth. So a little bit of Yeah, Krishna was very, when Bakasura swallowed Krishna, but that's good, I hadn't thought of that. I didn't have Bakasura down there. When Bakasura swallowed Krishna, then Krishna became very hot, and he threw him out. Okay, good, thank you. Any other pastime related to fire? Fire the He swallowed forest fire. Actually, twice. There's two forest fires that Krishna swallowed. One on the bank of the Yamuna after defeating Kaliya, and the other when the cows, uh, buffaloes, and goats wandered away from the banyan tree in Bandiravan into the, what's it called, the Ikitilan forest. And they got stuck in the sharp sugar canes, and then they got swallowed by. There was a fire after they were released, and Krishna swallowed that fire. Okay, some more about fire? Yes? Mm. Oh, very nice. With Ram. Of course, Krishna is from the Moon Dynasty, which is also light and fire. Okay? Diwali with Ramachandra, yes. Other pastimes related to fire? Oh, and would you come down? Fire came out of his eyes. That's good. What do you think of all the smells I had there? And would you put that fire come out of his eyes and burn Kamyavana? All right, there's the pastime of the Narayana Jwara and the Shiva Jwara. The Shiva Jwara was fire, Narayana Jwara was like ice. Um, the universal form in the Bhagavad Gita, fire coming out of his mouth. Okay, now we're going to go on to air. So, air again doesn't just mean the particular combination that we breathe, but any elements in a gaseous form. So we talked about how heat is subtle, but air is even subtler. So we have even less of it. We have our awareness of heat in this room is more than our awareness of air in this room. We are we are very very rarely aware of the fact that there's air. We're aware when there's no air. We notice when there's no air. But if there is air, we don't notice at all. 
So in a similar way, we don't notice Krishna. He's everywhere. He's all around us. He's all pervading. But we don't notice him. We just kind of take him for granted. And that's true with air pressure. So I don't know what it is in metrics, but there's 14 pounds of pressure per square inch. 14 pounds, what is that? 5 kgs or something per square inch. What's an inch? 2.54 times 2. So, and in every little piece about this big, you've got about 5 kgs of pressure. But yeah, I don't feel it. I'm not, I'm not aware of it. I'm unconscious of it. So Krishna's everywhere, but I'm not conscious of it. Krishna says he joins with the air of life, the five airs of life, to digest the food stuff. But again, we're breathing without being aware of it. I'm thinking that actually Krishna is our very breath. He says, I, I am there as the life breath. And we just take it, we're just going through our day. And just like Krishna's in the heart, he's in every atom, and we're just sort of, oh, and it's Krishna. But of course, air is visible by its effects. So as soon as air is moving, then you can tell it's there. So although Krishna's also invisible, and we tend to be unconscious about it, we can tell he's there by his effects, by the creation, by the order of creation. We know here's Krishna. Just like if the trees are moving, you know, oh, there's air. And what's interesting about air is it can move things that are apparently much more substantial than itself. Again, air appears to us to be nothing. But yet, it has the power, like in a tornado, it has the power at 300 miles per hour. Again, I don't know what that is in metrics. It'd be about double. So it can take a little tiny piece of wood, air can take a little tiny piece of wood and shove it into steel. So although Krishna appears to be imperceptible and subtle, yet he has all power. You notice this is a recurring theme with all of the elements. Yes. And it can carry other things without mixing with them. So this Krishna talks about that. Just like the air carries around us, that he can tell what's in our heart. So Krishna is carrying everything, but yet he doesn't mix with anything. He doesn't become contaminated by anything. And air, of course, is our most essential physiological need. The second one, by the way, is heat. Nobody ever guesses that. I ask people, what's, what's the main physiological need? Everybody says air, and then I say, what's the next one? They say water. No, it's heat. Anyway, air is the most essential one. Without air, what's the use of anything? So we have a nice banquet, right? A beautiful table, silk tablecloth, Candles, real beeswax candles, fragrant flowers, beautiful people dressed in beautiful clothing who all love you and you know admire you, and there's gorgeous paintings on the walls and all your favorite food, galubjamins and pizza and samosa and like, and all piled up in your favorite food, but there's no air. <laughs> That's just like you have one material life, you don't have Krishna. What does he use? What does he use? So we really think that. I just like I need air. Without air, everything else is useless. Without Krishna, everything else is useless. What, what benefit can you get? What pleasure can you get from anything? What meaning can you get from anything without Krishna? And we were talking about digestive fire, but of course, air is also required to combust our food. 
So Krishna again says that he's the digestive fire. Without Krishna, we cannot we cannot make this machine work. We can't take the milk and the rotis and turn them into fingernails. So that's Krishna. And the air makes the plants and the trees dance. It moves everything. Kavikana uh, describes this in Ananda Vrindavan Champu, how the wind is the dance teacher of the trees. So similarly, Krishna is always dancing. Whenever we see the trees and the plants dancing in the air, remember how Krishna is dancing. Prabhupada says the whole world, says the Krishna book in the Rasa chapter, the whole world is full of Krishna singing and dancing. And the air also forms patterns in water. And if the wind's blowing over water, it makes ripples and patterns. Same with sand. If the air is blowing over sand, it forms patterns. And how Krishna is the pattern maker in the universe. Again, with this beauty and gracefulness of dancing. So I chose with air to focus on Krishna's strength and power. We have the personalities regarded as very powerful are, of course, Hanuman and Bhima, who are both sons of air. You know, we, we might think again as earth as being the most powerful, but air is more powerful. So strong air can move big chunks of earth. Yes, although it appears to be more subtle. So this power of the, of the air reminds us that Krishna is the strongest, that even though uh, materialistic people or demons or whatever may appear to be very powerful, and Krishna may appear to be very subtle, and, and invisible, still he's always the strongest. And then what about pastimes related to air? Oh, turn your heart to demon, yes. Put in a second hand or life air, okay, that's great. Some more. These two ladies, they're like, Lila Wallace here. Somebody else here with pastimes. That's so nice. Somebody else here with pastimes. Krishna blowing his flute. Krishna blowing his flute. Yes. Some more. Mm, okay. There's probably quite a lot connected with Hanuman and Bhima since they're air people. <laughs> Krishna, yes? The blowing of the conch. Oh, nice. Yes. Krishna blowing his conch shell and shattering the hearts of the sons of the rest. What about the Lord breathing out all the universes? All these universes, oh, this whole universe is riding on the breath of the Lord. Breathing out, breathing out. What about flying through the air on Garuda? That's pretty cool. Wouldn't you like to fly through the air, like standing up on a big eagle in outer space? So even if he does that as Vishnu. Don't think only Krishna is playful. Vishnu is playful. Okay, now we're going to go to the last one. We're going to go to ether. Now, ether means space. So all of the other elements all exist within space. Okay? So space is the main component of material reality. 
So according to the Vedas, everything comes from space. Sound produces space. Right? From that, all the other elements come. And also, most everything is space. This room is primarily space. Even within the gases, the, in between the gas molecules is mostly space. Even the solid object, according to modern science, is about 90% space. Space between the molecules, between the atoms, within the atoms, and so forth. In the same way, Krishna is the main component of material reality. Now, space is completely undetectable. So we may not be so aware of heat unless we think about it, or unless it's particularly hot. We're not very aware of air unless it's either moving or absent. But we're really not very aware of space at all. Okay? I mean, how do you, how do you detect space? So the Shastra says you can detect space by sound. That sound needs space in order to move in. And sound is the ability to protect space. Of course, there are creatures who can judge distances through sound. There was even one young man who had uh, got cancer of the eyes, and his eyes had to be removed. And he would make little clicking sounds. And by making those clicking sounds, he could detect. Unfortunately, when he was a teenager, he died of his cancer. He was able to. He didn't need to use a cane or anything like that. He could go skateboarding down the street. You can find some videos of him on the internet. But he could do anything just with sound. He could determine space with sound. But we mostly determine space by the objects that, that make up the end of that space, rather than the space itself. So again, we can think about how Krishna is really undetectable. We detect Krishna more through his actions and the evidence is that he's been there rather than through him himself directly. And space doesn't mix with the other elements at all. It's all and Krishna describes himself, he says, just like this, the sky, just like the air, doesn't actually mix with space. He says, so I don't mix with anything, he says in the Bhagavad Gita. Now, space defines everything. Now, I, I, a very interesting experience I had about six and a half years where I had no home and no base. I was just always traveling. And when I was living like that, I realized how often people ask you where you're from. <laughs> when I had a home, I never thought about it. But as soon as I didn't have a home, people say, where are you from? Well, I don't have a home. No, no, where, where do you stay? Well, I don't stay anywhere. <laughs> well, when you're not traveling, then where do you stay? I, I don't stay anywhere. And people would get so confused by that. I also found it was quite interesting that a complete stranger will ask you where you're from. Complete, total stranger. They won't necessarily ask you your name. The next thing they'll ask is what you do. First thing they'll ask is where you're from. Next question will be what you do. But your name, you know, your marital status, all that kind of stuff, that you have to know somebody a little bit better. But complete stranger, just standing in a queue in a shop or something like that, people don't hesitate to say, where are you from? Again, I never noticed this until I didn't have an answer for it. And then all of a sudden I became aware of how often people ask that question. And I thought, well, why don't people ask that question? Because unless we can place something in space, we can't make any sense out of it. We have to know where does it fit? Where does it belong? Where is its place? So in the same way, unless you can put something in relationship to Krishna, you can't make any sense out of it. You know what to do with it. You can't define it. You have to have it in its place. 
And then, of course, space is perceived very differently at different levels of consciousness. So the way that a little bug would perceive the space in this room is radically different from how we would perceive the space. Even a little human child. You know, a child that can't yet crawl, if you walk out of the door, as far as that child's concerned, you've dropped off the edge of reality. And the child will get very upset if you leave the room. You know, it has a, 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 a non-mobile child has no concept of how one room leads to another. And the little bug, you know, has no idea of how the streets lead to one another and so forth and so on. So depending on your level of consciousness is how you perceive space. Similarly, depending on our level of consciousness is how we perceive Krishna. And again, space is completely out of our way. We just don't think about it. Very, very, very rarely think about it. In the same way, most people just don't think about Krishna. And I felt that space was most related to Krishna's opulence of renunciation because Krishna describes like that. That just like the nothing mixes with space. So he's renounced from everything. He's unaffected. He's separate. He's detached. So it's, it's very interesting about uh, of the six opulences of Krishna, this opulence of detachment. Right? Of all the six opulences, actually, this is the most opulent of the opulences. Do you know? I would think about material opulences. So beauty... Anybody get to keep their beauty till they're 90? No? Sadly. And all you have to do is be real sick and you're not beautiful anymore. So even if you're a fashion model, if you're really sick or really tired, you don't look beautiful. It's very fleeting. Or some disease, some accident, you lose your beauty. Or wealth. Wealth is pretty fleeting too, isn't it? Someone else can take it away from you. It doesn't, it doesn't even have to be a thief. It can just be the markets change, and all of a sudden, you know. And when devotee told me 2008, he said, overnight he lost half of his wealth. Hmm? Or the, the things, in other words, what he had all of a sudden had half the value. You buy land, all of a sudden that's half the value. Very shaky. What about fame? Fame is dependent on the view, of, completely dependent on the view of other people. So if everybody, you know, if you're famous one day, the next day everybody decides to forget about you, you can't really do much about it. There goes your fame. Or first, fame can turn to infamy very quickly. And then strength. Now again, as we get older, generally our strength diminishes. And some, again, some disease, some accident, some injury. And we can lose our strength. And knowledge. So again, that's very dependent on having good mental health. And people who get dementia when they get older or again through some disease or some accident and your knowledge is gone. But renunciation is not like that. Renunciation, who can take away your renunciation? What disease or injury or action of other people can take away your renunciation? Interesting, isn't it? That's a very high opulence and it's associated here with the most subtle of the material elements, right? Wealth was very much associated with earth, beauty very much with fire, um, but renunciation with, with space. So those who take the ple- taste the pleasure of renunciation, they lose their attraction for the other opulences. 
when someone's really tasting the, the happiness of being renounced, then they're not very interested in the happiness of wealth and beauty and fame and uh, knowledge and strength and so forth and so on. Again, you just, the descriptions of the devotees, the descriptions of the saving persons are all this kind of renunciation, this sort of detachment. So this is a really a very great opulence of Krishna. And without this opulence of renunciation, all the other opulences are, are not very attractive. Renunciation is very, very attractive. We are not attracted to attached people. If somebody's very smart and they know they're very smart and they're very attached to being very smart, you know, we might hire them to get a job done, but they're not attractive, isn't it? You know, or someone's really wealthy and they're attached to their wealth. It's not so attractive. We may hang around them hoping we'll get some of it, but we don't find them so attractive. The same with any of the opulences. What's really attractive is renunciation. It's what makes all the other opulences attractive. So whenever we see space, we can think about Krishna's opulence of renunciation. And this renunciation means freedom. Again, all the other opulences, you're very much dependent on circumstances and other people. Uh, the opulence of renunciation is the opulence of freedom. And Krishna is the most free, Swarat. Of course, in our ultimate existence, we are also free. Prabhu says the need of the soul is for freedom. And we feel that way in space, don't we? When you go out and you're in a place where there's big, expansive space, you're on the shore of the ocean and there's just this big sky and big space you feel free and when you're tiny tiny little space you feel imprisoned so space reminds us of the freedom of the Lord and of course Krishna exhibits his renunciation when he walks away from the Raslila and when he leaves Vrindavan to go to Mantara he exhibits his renunciation Jai he exhibits his renunciation in his neutrality as a super soul. You know, somebody that we love, like I see these signs all over South Africa, everywhere in South Africa. Find your lost lover, call this number. <laughs> I guess that's for witchcraft. Right? <laughs> African voodoo or something. <laughs> every every single place I've gone, it's plastered on. It must be lots of people who do that. It must be big businesses. <laughs> so generally, if you love somebody and they leave you, you do your best to get them back. But Krishna's detached. And of course, he sends the scriptures. He comes in his incarnations. He sends the devotees. But Krishna's detached. You want to love me? Fine. You don't want to love me. At least as the Paramatma, he has this renunciation and this detachment. Whatever you want to do, I'll facilitate that. And uh, ether or space reminds me of Krishna's name, like fire reminds me of Krishna's form and water of Krishna's pastimes. So, space reminds me of Krishna's name. Why? Because in space is sound. Sound is the element associated with Krishna's name. And of course, that Krishna is the same with his name. Krishna has so many varieties of names. And the chanting process, which is the easiest process to come in touch with Krishna. So, any pastimes related to space? Yes? Krishna and Narada the traveling spaceman. Oh, Narada the traveling spaceman, okay. Krishna and Narada, because he had 16,100 queens, and at the certain point of 
as one Krishna. Yeah. yeah, that Krishna was that Krishna could be in all the palaces at the same time, and yet he would go as one Krishna. Okay, good. Yes. Ah, Vrindavan expanding and contracting. Some more. Oh, Vamandev is walking, stretching his leg and going through space. Very nice. The whole universe are formed with Arjuna, where all space was in one place. All time at one, at one time and all space in one place. Anymore? We could look at it also from, you know, we think something fits into space. Mm. But Krishna is... Yeah, maintaining that whole space that's within him. So oh, very nice. About the qualities of space. Oh, another. Oh, another thing that reminds me relating to uh, space giving things meaning because of where it fits. Mm-hmm. So one time, my daughter-in-law's uh, daughter uh, took all of the keys off of her computer, <laughs> and when my son put them back on, he couldn't get the space bar to work properly. So she's typing to me words without spaces, <laughs> and I could. I couldn't read it. And so it was interesting. Without, without space, there's no meaning. So it's not just where are you from, where do things go. Uh, without pauses in music, you can't have a melody. Without spaces and words and pauses and words, you can't understand the meaning. So it's actually the space that gives meaning to everything. Okay, any other pastimes with space? The Matsya pasta, Krishna was a small fish. Oh, Krishna kept getting bigger and bigger as Matsya. Oh, that's cool. Varaha did that too, kept getting bigger and bigger. Taking out more Do you know the pastime of Lord Brahma going to see Krishna? Another pastime? It's told to Jimmy Chaitanya. That Lord Brahma came to see Krishna, you know, he knocks on the door. And the doorkeeper comes, who's there? What do you mean, who's there? I'm Brahma. Okay. Comes back and says, Krishna wants to know what Brahma you are. <laughs> what do you mean, what Brahma I am? I'm Brahma. I'm the four headed Brahma, the father of the four Kumaras. What Brahma? What is he talking about? Okay, we can come. So he comes in and then he sees millions of other Brahmas from other universes. And some of them have, you know, ten heads and ten million heads and ten thousand heads. And Krishna says, So how is everything? Everything is fine, Lord. Are you conquering the demons? Yes, you're conquering the demons. Very good. And they all offer obeisances. There's this big clamor. But each Lord Brahma thought, Krishna's only in my universe. Our Lord Brahma could see all the Brahmas, but each other Brahma could only see themselves in Krishna. So how Krishna can play with space like that. Nice pastime. Or are you talking about with all the queens, same with all the gopis, Krishna's by the side of each gopi, and each gopi thinks Krishna's only with me. Or Krishna's sitting in the middle of a circle with the coward boys, and each coward boy thinks Krishna is only looking at me. Think Krishna's like I'm like I can look at you, but I'm facing you, right? I'm just facing him, Surya. So if I want to have to turn, oh body. Right? But each coward boy thought Krishna's facing me. Not just that Krishna's like turning his head and looking at me. They all thought Krishna's facing me. Alright, well I have notes here for mind, intelligence, and false ego, but I've never actually should I try it even though I've never done it before or should we just stop with the gross elements try it. want me to try it should I, should I take the risk and experience okay I might really blow this 
Because all I've ever done is write notes. I've never like really meditated on it. So it, 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 this particularly, the uh, mind intelligence and false ego, when Krishna talks to the gopis of Kurukshetra, Prabhupada makes the point that all of the actions of the mind are actually Krishna. And he says, whenever we, ha- whenever we notice any of the functions of the mind, that's Krishna. So what is our mind made of? Our mind is made of prana, of the kundalini energy. Let me just read that there. I think it was when I was in Mayapur. The Bhagavatam verse for that morning. Well, Prabhupada was talking about, he doesn't talk about it often, but he's talking about the kundalini energy. And the mind is made up of the different chakras. And we think about how Krishna is actually, Krishna moves through the chakras of Lord Brahma to create the universe. And that depending on where our mind is situated, we see the world differently. What else can we say? That our mind is Krishna's mercy, so we can believe that we are separate from him. That's not And the mind reminds me of Krishna's devotees, so just like fire reminds me of Krishna's form and space of, of, of um, Krishna's neutrality, so the mind reminds me of Krishna's devotees who are always absorbed in thoughts of him, like Srimati Radharani is always thinking of Krishna, or Dhammani is always thinking of Krishna. And Krishna likes to swim in the Manasi Ganga. So the Manasi Ganga was the Ganga created from the mind of Nandama. And intelligence, the qualities of our intelligence, is it's really the super soul. Krishna says once you, if, if you conquer the mind, if you're on the platform of the intelligence, you've already reached the super soul. You're right next to the super soul. The intelligence is where all of our memory is stored. And of course, Krishna says, Matasma Chirganam Bohanaja. And it's our basic guide for what we want to do in this world, why Krishna is our guide. It's our, our analytical powers, our intelligence, which of course is Krishna giving us that ability to think. And the devotees I thought about there were Uddhava, who gives advice to Krishna, and Vyasadeva, who gives us all the intelligence on the Vedas. And some pastimes I thought of in relationship to mind, intelligence, and ego were killing Agasura. Because Krishna enters into his body just like the yogis find Krishna in their heart through meditation. Haranyakashipu was like the personification of false ego. Um, was specifically the false ego. That the nature of the false ego is I want to become the enjoyer. I want to become the Purusha and enjoy Prakriti. The ultimate expression of false ego is the yogis who want to have the Kundalini Shakti go to the Sahasra Chakra to merge Shiva and Shakti. So the ultimate of the false ego is I am the enjoyer. And actually, false ego reminds us of Shiva, who is the personification of false ego, who we'll talk about on Sunday morning. And pastimes related to false ego are the false Vasudev, the Pandraka who came and said, I am actually Vasudev. <laughs> give me your weapons and give me your name. And Krishna says, well, I'm not going to give you my name, but I'll give you one of my weapons. Here it is. <laughs> Off with his head. So I hope this has given you some ideas.
about how throughout our day in association with solids, liquids, gases, radiant energy, space, and even our own mind, we can always remember Krishna. That everything, everything, everyone that we encounter in this world can remind us of Krishna's qualities, can remind us of Krishna's leelas, Krishna's form, Krishna's philosophy, and Krishna's relationship with us. So I think we should stop now. Unless we have like a couple minutes for questions, but I don't want to promise myself it wasn't going to go too late tonight. Yes? Hi. For freedom, yes. But it struck in my head how usually when people think about being attached to Krishna, they're thinking that they're going to leave the freedom of being themselves behind. So can you just... Oh, well, that's interesting. Because even detachment is really, it's one of the material opulences. And although detachment is much more pleasurable than wealth, fame, beauty, knowledge, strength, etc., much, much, much more pleasurable. Uh, still, the attachment to detachment is also material. I'm so detached. It's a, ultimately, it's an attachment for liberation. So although the need of the soul is freedom, the irony is that our real freedom comes when we attach ourselves to Krishna, the person not when we're just floating in the Brahman. Real freedom for us is not just having no attachments. That's not ultimately satisfying. Which is why, even though detachment is much more pleasurable than the other opulences, people don't stay there. Do they? We'll be detached for a while. It's like, I'm free. And then we go and get attached to something again. Why? Because our ultimate freedom is found actually in attachment. But of course, if we're attached to Krishna, Krishna is full freedom. That attachment is full freedom. Those who are attached to Krishna can do whatever they want and go wherever they want. Isn't that interesting? Because they can be trusted. When you're attached to Krishna, you're fully trustworthy. And therefore, you have both full detachment and the full happiness of relationship. I was once, uh, so often when I travel, I stay at the houses of families. So once when I was staying with one family, the husband and wife got into a fight when I was there. Usually, families try not to fight when there's guests in the house. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't work. Anyway, they got into a big fight. And they were fighting over who was going to change the baby's nappy and clothes before they went to the Sunday feast. <laughs> so, you, know, you do it, you do it, you do it, you do it. It got really heavy in the... Uh, the wife took the baby and just stuck her in her husband's room and went to get in the car, and the husband just picked up the baby and put the baby in the car, and, you know, it was, it was really nasty. So the wife ends up driving off to the Sunday feast with the baby... And I'm still in the house. And I looked at the husband and I said, so what was that all about? <laughs> and he thought for quite a while. I, I, and I, you know, I said, what were you afraid of? And he thought for a while. I came back and he said, well, 
I was afraid that if I did what my wife told me to do, I'd lose my freedom. And if I didn't do what she told me to do, I'd lose my relationship. And so I just got angry. And I really meditated on that. Because we want both. We want relationships, but we also want freedom. We don't want a relationship where we lose our freedom, but we don't want freedom when we have no relationships. You know, in modern society, this shows up as, you know, perpetual boyfriend-girlfriend situations. I'm going to have my relationships without commitment. Of course, if you try to do it that way, you get neither. You don't really have your freedom, and you don't really have your relationship. So basically, you have all the sufferings of relationship and all the sufferings of freedom and not the happiness of either. Anyway, that's all, all modern societies like that. They, they keep the... Another story. But with Krishna, you have both. You have complete relationship and you have complete freedom. So that's really what, we, what we're looking for. That's really, really what we're looking for. It reminds me of a, a very wonderful pastime, Jiva Goswami's book, Madhava Mahotsava, which is an interesting name for the book that he calls it Madhava Mahotsava. Mahotsava means festival. I mean, utsaha literally means enthusiasm, but maha utsava, mahotsava, great enthusiasm, but it means this festival. But Madhava Mahotsava is not really about Madhava's festival, it's about Radharani's festival. It's about when Radharani gets crowned the queen of Vrindavan. So at the end of the whole ceremony and festival, at the end of her coronation, she says, I give the benediction that all bound persons can be liberated. So just like, you know, sometimes in ordinary politics, I know in America at least, uh, when a president has finished his term and he's not going to be reelected again, one of the things he generally does is he pardons some criminals. And he usually does it like the, the last night that he's president. You can understand why. Yeah. So it won't affect him politically depending on who he pardons. So it's one of the last things that U.S. presidents typically do their last night in office. They pardon some criminals. So typically, the politicians, if they're having some sort of celebration, part of their celebration, they need to pardon some criminals. So Radharani says anyone who's bound can be liberated. And all of her friends get very frightened. They say, Radharani, we're bound to you in love. We don't want to be liberated. We don't want you to break that relationship of love. So again, in this world, we don't really understand that. We, we are not able in this world to have relationships that give us freedom. We're always having to choose. Am I, am I lonely and free? <laughs> or do I have relationships and I'm bound? Yes? And not just relationships with people, relationships with things, even. No. Okay, you don't have a house, you're free, but then you don't have a house. You understand? You're free of mortgage, you're free of rent, you're free of buying cleaning supplies, and taking care of the plumbing, but then you don't have any shelter. So this is, this is our problem. Therefore, we do something called bogatiyaga, bogatiyaga. We enjoy them, we renounce. We enjoy them, we enjoy them. Like, oh, I can't take this anymore. We renounce. We're like, oh, I don't have any pleasure anymore. We enjoy them. Go ahead. This bogatiyaga. But in Krishna, you find both. 
Krishna, you find full freedom. The, the relationships with Krishna is on the basis of complete freedom. It's totally voluntary. And you're not, you're not having a relationship with Krishna to meet your needs. He's not meeting his needs, you're not meeting your needs. It's not, it's not based on emptiness, it's based on fullness and freedom and voluntary. I mean, even Prabhupada said that we should, that should be the management system in ISKCON. Although I think it's very, very difficult to actually do that 100%. We should, the, the leaders should be careful not to, uh, you say, that's the word he used. the word, it wasn't destroy. Anyway, the, the, uh, the spirit of enthusiasm, which is individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. So our, our feelings of enthusiasm are individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. So that was the secret of good management. Then he said, but who are the managers who can do that? But it's very difficult with conditioned souls to have everything individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. And we tend in the material world to put obligation and force of law on people to get them to do things. We tend to do it with ourselves. We tend to put obligation and force of law on ourselves to get ourselves to do things. We, we take vows and promises and sign contracts because we don't trust that we're going to voluntarily do even what we want to do. Yes? This is what I want to do. I don't even trust myself. Correct? It's not just that I have contracts because I don't trust other people. I also have to have contracts because I don't trust myself. So we, in this world, we intentionally curtail our freedom in order to get our relationships and get our happiness. But when one is liberated, what does liberated mean? What's the synonym for liberated? Free. When you're free and you're fully on the platform of full integrity and trustworthiness, you don't need any rules. You don't need contracts. You don't, you don't, you don't need any sense of obligation anymore. That's the difference between Vaidhi Bhakti and Raghunuga Bhakti. Raghunuga Bhakti is on that platform of just spontaneous, voluntary, free love. But you can't have that just by floating in the Brahman. So the ultimate exhibition of just detachment, just the bliss of detachment, which is certainly higher than the bliss of materialism, is your floating in the Brahman. But that's not the ultimate satisfaction of the soul. Thank you, that's a wonderful question. Anybody else? Yes? Quite some time back, Shibata was wondering about King here, and he told us that if we, when we're taking breath, if you call out loudly three times, Ganga, 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 then she will be present in the water with the breath. Oh, that's cool. I've never read that. I used to always do that before, and then I used to call out all the holy rivers. Oh, that's nice. But then I was thinking, is that I stopped doing it because I was wondering, isn't it an offense to these personalities? Because we're in an unclean state before we start bathing, and so I. I, I don't think so because the people who live by the Ganga, they go take bath in the Ganga. They don't take a bath first and then take bath in the Ganga. They take bath. In the Ganga. So then it's not. A you tell me. I don't know. I feel, I I'm asking you the question. Yeah. So the people who live by the Ganga, do they first take bath in something else and then go bathe in the Ganga? No. No. They just take bath in the Ganga, yes? Yes. 
or the Yamunas. Yes? We don't even do that around You don't see anybody doing that around You don't see anybody bringing along with them another bucket of water from some other place and first bathing in that water and then going into Radhakanta. It's just not done. I mean, we might sit and say, well, maybe they should do that, but that's not, that's not the tradition. Is it? No. I mean, I don't know if it's true if you call them all the come, why not? It's not hard. If when you're bathing, you're remembering the Ganga and the Jamuna and the Narmada and the Kaveri. When we do that for the deities, we call all the sacred waters. So, yeah, why not do it for your own bath? Sounds like a cool idea. I've never heard of that. I, mean, I can't say if it's bona fide, but it sounds cool. When we were little, my mom used to also do that, but she wasn't a devotee. She used to always call out all the holy names of the rulers. And then when Mark said that, it made so much sense. But then I was just thinking that these are such great personalities when you, you realize who they really are. And I was thinking that... You didn't want to call them to bathe you, huh? <laughs> well then, but when you actually go there to India, you can't take bath either. What are you going to do? If you're so fallen and you're so contaminated that you can't take any of the means of purifying, purification, what are you going to do? Are you too fallen to eat prasadam too? Are you too fallen to chant Krishna's holy name? What are you going to do? Yeah, sometimes people say things like that. Well, I'm so contaminated I can't chant. First I'll, first I'll get purified and then I'll chant. First I'll get purified, then I'll take prasadam. Then what will purify you? What will purify you? See, some other water is going to purify you more than the Ganga. So, does that you understand? That's like when people say, "I can't think about Krishna until I'm pure," and I say, "Well, what's going to purify you?" Because Krishna is going to purify you. What, what is this thing you're going to do first to purify yourself before you can think of Krishna? There's something more pure than thinking about Krishna that you're going to do first. So first I'm going to use, you know, India city water. Before I take my bath in the Ganga, I'm going to clean myself with the, in, with the Indian government city water. And that will purify me to bathe in the Ganga. Doesn't make any sense. But it's nice that you're humble. That's sweet. I'm sure all the rivers are pleased with your humility. <laughs> but I think it's a little misplaced humility. <laughs> it's nice humility. A little misplaced. But it's sweet. Yes? So, the act of surrender, when you chant or when you uh, do any of you know, spiritual practice, is and then being uh, the mercy of that spiritual um, being. Is that like a form of purification as well? So basically, when calling on the name, you surrender first, and then you obtain mercy, and then by that, you, even though you're so fallen, you can then be uplifted by the name. Sure. Is that the correct way of thinking? That's one correct way of thinking of it. I wouldn't say that's the only correct way of thinking of it. Because it's not just linear. You have to remember it's a relationship with a person. So like in your relationships with other people, 
it's pretty hard to make it into a mathematical formula that first this happens and then this happens and then this happens, some chronological, okay, well, first I do this and then I do this and then I do this. It's not, it's hard to pull those things out and separate them like that. Do you surrender to someone because you love them? Do you love them because you surrender to them? I don't know. How do you, how do you tease those two things out? They, they almost happen at the same time, and one feeds the other, and it, it's, it's almost like a, a spiral that's hard to say exactly where it starts. But surrendering is one of the nine processes of devotional service. Full surrender is considered a very advanced form of devotional service. Complete surrender. And surrender can also be understood in... in divided into six parts, that there are six aspects of surrender. And then Rupa Goswami, as giving the angas of surrender, gives the angas of, in the 64 angas, he gives it two separate ways. There's two different kinds of surrender. So, yes, I would say you're right, but it's not like you could say, okay, this is, this is it. This is the only way to understand it, and all the other ways of understanding it are wrong, so you're not right like that. Does that make sense to you? Because we're dealing with a person, there's also many right ways to describe your relationship with the person. It's not only one right way. This is one thing that confuses people who want to think, well... If all religions are talking about God, they should all be talking about him exactly the same way. But if God is a person, then everyone's going to be talking about him a little bit differently. If God was simply a mathematical formula or a table, then everybody would be talking about him the same way. But one strong evidence that God is a person is that you can describe the absolute truth in many, many different ways. And you can, you can describe the process of coming close to this absolute truth in many different ways. That there's not only one way to describe it. So thank you very much. All grace to Shri Prabhupada.